Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Our friends at Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, or PCRM, have just publicly announced that they will begin urging the Tuskegee University College of Veterinary Medicine to end their practice of using live animals in terminal surgeries as part of their training program. They have filed a complaint with the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, are posting billboards and explaining this campaign with a detailed press release. So the bottom line of their campaign is, you don't have to kill one animal to save the other. I want to welcome back to the show a good friend of animals today, Dr. John Pippin, Dr. Pippin's Director of Academic Affairs at Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. It's great to have you back on the show, John. It's been a while, Lori. Thank you. It's, uh, it's great to be back. Why don't you please start by explaining what terminal surgeries are and how they are used in veterinary training? You know, John, I bet that many pet lovers have no idea what this is and would be horrified that this is still being done. Yeah, um, a, a lot of the things we run into would just uh, shock the dickens out of people if they knew about it, and that's why programs don't don't uh, want them to know. Terminal surgeries are a practice whereby um, veterinary programs will obtain, in one way or another, uh, healthy animals, use them to practice surgeries and other kinds of procedures, trauma procedures, and so on, and then kill them. The, the rationale being, from their point of view, well, they're going to be uh, providing care to animals. They need to practice on animals. Uh, if we use the same principle in human medicine, people would be um, aghast. Right. Uh, so that's what it is, and uh, not only is it not true that, that it has to be taught that way, uh, it is uh, actually true that many veterinary programs don't do that. Uh, some have never done it, and many have changed. So there's no reason now, thank goodness, to kill healthy animals in order to teach veterinarians how to save sick animals. Well, thanks in large part to the work of PCRM, veterinary schools do not need to rely upon terminal surgeries to train their veterinary students. And you've listed in your PR material which schools are using other training methods. But there's a little story, John, as to how you found out about what's going on at Tuskegee University. Please share that with us. In September uh, 2018... Well, actually, in March 2018, a, a member uh, of our organization informed us that the Phoenix City Animal Shelter in Alabama was releasing dogs who had been brought there by their owners, uh, was releasing them to the Tuskegee Vet School for these terminal surgeries. Um, they were not telling the uh, animals' guardians who brought them in what was going to happen. They thought that either the animals would be adopted or if uh, they were not adoptable that they would get a, a merciful uh, death with uh, an injection. But they were turning them over to Tuskegee where they were getting um, basically uh, sliced and diced and then uh, killed after they were used in this way. We, uh, we followed up on that, and we found out that in August and September of 2018, there were two media reports uh, of uh, animals who people had brought to the Phoenix City Animal Shelter 
and then later found out had been turned over to uh, Tuskegee Vet School and uh, scrambled to save their dogs from um, going through this, mm. being used for practice, and then uh, killed. Uh, they had no idea this was going to happen, and uh, the media reports uh, made it seem reasonably, I think, that uh, there was some subterfuge going on, that people didn't know what was going to happen to their animals when they brought them to the shelter, and that the Phoenix Hilti Shelter was uh, feeding these animals to Tuskegee. That's horrible. So that's how we found out, and of course, having learned that, uh, we couldn't just let it uh, sit there, so we decided to take action. Yes, so after getting this anonymous tip, you quietly launched an investigation, and what did that entail? We were able to obtain quite a, a quite a number of public records, and we found out that although Tuskegee was very closed-mouthed about how many animals they were using, uh, we documented that they had received from one shelter, the Phoenix City Shelter, uh, 159 dogs between January 2017 to September uh, 2018. Wow. And uh, we had no records after that, and the um, leadership at Tuskegee Veterinary School refused to tell us uh, where they were getting animals, although they said they were still acquiring animals not from the Phoenix shelter, but elsewhere, and were continuing their terminal surgeries. We also found uh, USDA inspection reports showing that uh, faculty members at the Tuskegee Vet School had misappropriated people's animals uh, who had been brought into the animal shelter uh, and used them in research protocols for which they had not been approved. And one faculty member, as a matter of fact, was suspended uh, for this, and the uh, university was reprimanded by the USDA on two separate occasions. So there's a very strong pattern of disregard, really, not only for the animals who are being used in this way, but for the federal law which protects them. Okay, so John, you discovered there were violations of the Animal Welfare Act and other, let's say, irregularities, and you and a number of other notable supporters sent a letter to Robert Gibbons with the USDA. What are the main points you made to Dr. Gibbons, and what are you asking him to do? Uh, we reported that to Dr. Gibbons, who, for your listeners, is the Director of Animal Welfare Operations for the USDA and therefore responsible for enforcement of the Animal Welfare Act. Uh, we reported these violations, which are a matter of record at the USDA. We also reported our interactions with uh, Tuskegee and what we learned about where they acquired animals and what was still going on there. And then we laid out one, two, three, the uh, violations we believe are ongoing at uh, Tuskegee regarding the Animal Welfare Act. And we asked Dr. Gibbons to have um, his staff um, conduct an investigation and reach a determination. We're, we're sure that they will do an inspection. It's, uh, it's hazardous to try to predict exactly what they will say, uh, but the evidence is so overwhelming here that we believe they'll find that Tuskegee remains in continuing violation of the Animal Welfare Act. 
uh, has uh, displayed a disregard for the Animal Welfare Act, has um, misappropriated and violated the um, the rights of uh, animal owners who thought they were uh, giving their animals to a shelter and not to a veterinary training program. And um, we're asking the USDA to correct that and to assess any penalties they think may be indicated. John, briefly tell us what other training methods and technologies are available. Okay, well, we, uh, we actually have worked with other veterinary programs, uh, most recently uh, probably uh, Oklahoma State Veterinary School. They have their trainees uh, perform spay and neuter operations under faculty guidance, uh, and then return the animals to the shelter, which makes them more adoptable because the spay and or neuter has already been performed and it saves money and makes them more attractive for adoption. Right. They have feral cat clinics, uh, trap, neuter, and release, where people bring in feral cats. They are neutered and uh, receive veterinary care and then are returned to their locations. They have established, these vet programs have established extensive clinical rotations with practicing vets in the community who can use the help from uh, motivated uh, veterinary students and who also provide the supervision that lets them get experience they need in performing veterinary exams and performing veterinary surgeries. Uh, Other uh, schools also have what are called veterinary community outreach programs where people who are unable to afford the costs of veterinary care can have their animals uh, cared for. For instance, if someone has a, uh, let's say, a dog with cancer and can't afford the treatments, they can give these animals over to one of the program, one of the vet schools that runs the veterinary community programs and get that care for a reduced rate or free. Um, and there are also field service opportunities, mobile veterinary units, uh, a very interesting program called the Will Body Program, where uh, when people have animals who, are, uh, who have terminal disease of one kind or another, um, rather than just having their animals uh, die, they can, can donate them to the veterinary school and let the veterinarians there learn how to manage these complex uh, uh, problems. Uh, so the, the alternatives are tremendous if you open your eyes and you're available to them. But if you are determined that you're going to do things uh, the old way, then it doesn't matter how good the programs are. And that's right. Terminal surgeries are just not necessary. John, are there other U.S. veterinary schools that are still conducting terminal surgeries? There are. I don't think there are any uh, now, Lori, that require it. They may recommend it, but I don't think any of. I think they all offer their veterinary students the opportunity to opt out and and do other things. But there are several: uh, Tufts University of Florida, UC Davis, Ohio State, Western University in California, Oklahoma State, Michigan State that don't have any terminal uh, surgeries and have not had for years. Um, Tough since the 1990s, uh, Western University in California from their uh, inception in 2003, and it's just all going in that direction. 
the option of whether they want to opt in or opt out of doing terminal surgery shouldn't even be given to the students. They no, should. it shouldn't. I only mention that as an indication that veterinary programs that used to require yeah. terminal surgeries now are backing off from that. And the next step, the next natural step, is to remove that from the curriculum altogether. And I have to agree, because even having it as an option, in my view, places an unfair pressure upon the students who object to the practice to do it anyway. Okay, don't go away. More with Dr. John Pippin right after the break. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Dr. John Pippin about what is called terminal surgeries. And if you're like me, you're probably horrified to learn that adoptable healthy dogs are taken from shelters and supplied to veterinary schools so that students can practice surgery on them only for the dogs to be killed when they're done. John, PCRM has informational billboards on display. What are you hoping to accomplish with them? Well, as you mentioned early in our conversation, the public uh, often doesn't know what's going on in these veterinary training programs. And uh, although we always try to deal directly with the programs, as we've tried to do with the Tuskegee program, when we hit a wall, uh, you know, when we're, if we get stiff-armed, then uh, we go to the public and say, did you know this is going on? Here's the background. Here's what's going on. Here's a website you can go to to learn more about it. And why don't you contact Tuskegee and tell them this is not what you want for the animals in your community. This is not what you want to happen if you have to take your animal to an animal shelter for any reason. And uh, this kind of deceptive practices that, um, that takes people's animals and does these things to them and then kills them is something that I think will make people sit up and take notice. John, if veterinary students see that there's something really wrong at their school, are you hoping that they will contact you and be like a whistleblower? Well, um, the way we found out about Tuskegee was through a whistleblower from a, the details of it anyway, from a graduate of the program who went to the media uh, as a whistleblower and uh, exposed this not only because of what was being done to the animals, but because of the psychological trauma that the, um, the veterinary students were going through when they, you know, you've got a healthy uh, cat or dog in front of you, a, a tail wagging, licking mm. your face, and mm. you're going to kill them. Uh, that's a terrible thing to have to go through. I mentioned Oklahoma State earlier. We helped to change the program at Oklahoma State uh, directly through a student who uh, started a campaign at her own program. Think how brave she was. She was a student there, and yet she started a campaign to end terminal surgeries in the curriculum at the same time. Well, she, she got it done, uh, and that's how Oklahoma State came around. So we encourage people to let their conscience speak to them. Uh, you know you don't have to do this. You know there are pro programs all over the country that don't do it. Uh, you know that since you're going into veterinary medicine, you obviously have deep feelings about these animals. You want to dedicate your career to saving their lives and keeping them healthy. How in the world can you kill them in the process? 
And you don't have to swallow that. You don't have to sit there on your hands and uh, wonder what you can do. You can uh, go to your program leaders and say, we don't want to do this. We don't think it should be in the curriculum. Veterinary students might fear that there might be some retribution, like them being kicked out. They they may fear that, but I think it would be uh, not only very unusual but very stupid right. for uh, a veterinary school to uh, boot a student out because they wanted to introduce a humane element in the curriculum. Exactly. That would that would blow up right away, of course. Right. So that's what we encourage them to do. And of course, we will help them. <clears throat> we, we don't leave anybody hanging. If they want our help, they will come to us. Uh, we'll help them do it. Fantastic. Uh, if they feel that they have um, a head of steam at their institution, we'll be glad to give them information that we may have that would be useful. This can be done, and it can be done from the inside. And we sincerely hoped that it could be done from the inside at Tuskegee, but we have uh, we've just gotten slapped around by them. They they don't want to discuss it. They're going to continue this program, and that's all there is to it. We're equally determined that they're not going to continue to do this, and we're going to stay on it until it changes. You know, there are so many pressures and so much stress veterinary students and medical students have to deal with that placing them in a situation where they might be judged negatively for just going against the grain just should not be another concern for them. I do know what you mean. Um, and the same thing happens in human medicine, in, in medical schools, where maybe they use animals in a research lab or they use animals in an anatomy or physiology or surgery lab, but they allow the students to opt out. And the students may be thinking, maybe I'll get a bad evaluation if I don't go along to get along here. But we see less and less of that. Students see successes all around them. They um, they take the bull by the horn, so to speak, and uh, try to get their programs to comply with the confluence between ethical training and effective training. You don't have to weaken the training program or provide an inferior type of training uh, if you don't use living creatures uh, to do that. In fact, it's been well shown in many, many comparative studies that the alternatives that I mentioned, as well as purpose-designed um, simulations that are uh, that have been um, developed to teach specific procedures, that veterinarians can come out just as well-trained without ever having done that thing that is so contrary to the entire concept of veterinary medicine, which is killing healthy animals. I mean, it's just, you think about it, it's just... Outrageous. It's jaw-dropping. What is going on in veterinary schools when veterinarians are um, forced to kill healthy animals in order to learn how to do procedures? John, I just want to add a personal point here, and that is when I went to medical school a few decades ago, my school did have a live animal lab in which the animals were killed at the end of the session. And frankly, I don't remember whether we were given the ability to opt out, but I do remember that somehow I avoided the lab altogether. But you know, it's many years later, and I still, like I said before, am shocked that a few vet schools and medical training programs are using live animals in this fashion. So, John, what can listeners do to help? Well, uh, we have, uh, you have access to our complaint. You, you're certainly free to make that available. You can point them toward our website, 
uh, www.pcrm.org. They can go to our Tuskegee uh, campaign page. They can contact the um, uh, leaders at Tuskegee and tell them they want this to stop, uh, that it's an outrage. And we have found many times, as you know, you've been there with us through the years, that sometimes when we push and push and we can't quite get there, the public gets involved and that's what gets the job done. Dr. John Pippin with PCRM, thank you so much. Well, you invite uh, us on. You let us take this from an internal uh, operation to a public operation. It's a great opportunity for us. We get to that transition point where we say, you know, we need to tell the public what's going on. We can't we can't just uh, play this close to the vest anymore, and you let us do that. And I can tell you right now, you've got listeners who are sitting there and their mouths are open. They, they can't believe what they're hearing about what's going on at Tuskegee Veterinary School. Go to our website, get the contact information, call them up, send them an email, uh, give them what for, tell them that they're wrong, and um, hopefully they'll say, you know, when the whole world is against us, maybe we are wrong. Dr. John Pippin, it's great to talk to you. Thank you for all your great work. Thank you for having me, and uh, I look forward to coming back again. You bet. Don't go away. More with animals today, right after the break. Welcome back to the show. Maria Godavich has a new book out, and it's called Dr. Dogs, How Our Best Friends Are Becoming Our Best Medicine. And it doesn't surprise me that she's come out with a title like this. Her previous books are called Soldier Dog, Top Dog, and Secret Service Dogs. In fact, we spoke with her in 2017 about that and had a real nice chat. So uh, welcome, Maria. Thank you. I'm happy to be back. Okay, like I said, it didn't surprise me when I saw the early release information about this book. Uh, How did it come to be? Well, you know, my previous books were about dogs who were using their noses and their bonds with their handlers to kind of thwart the bad guys to to keep them out of harm's way. And these dogs are doing this in a different kind of way. They're they're keeping their people safe from disease and illness. And so and they're using their noses for the most part. These doctor dogs are kind of very cutting edge version of surface dogs and also um, the detection dogs in a very medical setting in research settings um, and they're and these dogs and by the way in research settings they're happy dogs who come in for the day and leave at the end of the day and get lots of treats and rewards they're not beagles locked in cages I always want to get that out of the way yeah and they serve in many capacities and we'll go into a few of them uh, in a moment but what have you learned about their noses so what should we know about the uh, sensitivity uh, of dogs noses they're a astonishingly sensitive. They can sniff, dogs can sniff in parts per trillion as well as 3D. And there's a scientist I interviewed in the book who likes to say that dogs can sniff in color because I think she said that because their olfactory world is so incredibly rich and vivid. It's kind of like our visual world. So what they can sense with their nose is 
the only thing we can really understand is maybe through our eyes. It's it's that rich and vivid. And they have they have a we can smell pretty well. We have about six million olfactory receptors, but dogs have up to three hundred million. So it just it shows you how much better equipped they are to sense things that we have no idea perhaps even exist. Are we learning about the biology and the uh, nose brain of dogs so that we can create synthetic versions of what they're so good at doing? Well, you know what, that's that's what a lot of the doctor dogs are doing. Those who help people in um, one-on-one, like diabetic alert dogs, seizure alert dogs, I don't think they will be replaced anytime soon. But the dogs who are doing research in these universities and centers around the world are just doing this for now. Eventually, they'll be sniffing out. Right now, just to explain, they're, they're detecting cancer at very early stages, many different kinds of cancers. People don't even know what they're smelling. The researchers have no idea. They're working with them. To to determine what volatile organic compounds, what what smells the the compounds emit, so that perhaps in the not too distant future there can be technology. You can go to your doctor's office and breathe into a tube, and it can tell you all kinds of things about um, early stage cancer or no cancer, and you're safe for another year for really hard to detect cancers. And same with Parkinson's and some other uh, some other pathogens actually that they're discovering. Dogs can sniff out very early in these laboratory settings. Dogs are only human, I like yeah. to say, so they they make mistakes sometimes. They're not perfect. They're they're hardworking, but they get tired and distracted. So having a dog lead the way to this technology is the best way to do it. Have dogs been deployed in any uh, conventional clinical setting yet, or is all the cancer detection uh, stuff being done under research protocols? Well, pretty much research protocol, but I did go to Japan to witness the first, um, this was a research, this was still a study in a way, but they were using the dogs to detect cancer in the urine of people in this beautiful small village in northern Japan, rural Japan. They have an extremely high stomach cancer rate in this area, and um, I went to see this bucolic area where this cancer is quite prominent and um, they, this town is called Kaneyama and they are very forward thinking. They worked with a Tokyo doctor, um, Miyashita, who was using dogs to detect cancer in the urine of people, stomach cancer in the urine of these people. And it was a little hard because dogs need to be rewarded. As anyone who's ever worked with a dog knows that they they love to do the work, but they generally work for reward in these settings, especially in these research settings. So um, they couldn't tell who had cancer and who didn't. So they didn't know when to reward the dog. So it wasn't, it wasn't what they had thought it might be in the beginning dogs really need to to know when they when they hit something that's the reward they get so that was an interesting outcome but it again it shows the need for the technology to happen from the dog's noses and actually they're working on that in japan right now and i just want to mention uh, by the way that one of the fun things about reading your books is that you do bring us around the world with your first hand experiences so really appreciate that it's fun thank you Okay, so it was a lot of fun, actually. We got to go to England and Amsterdam, Japan, and Budapest. I wanted to go to Africa, but it turned out they were doing the malaria detection um, initial work in England. So, um, but they are actually deploying these dogs right now to Africa in a preliminary study to see if they can detect malaria on people who are passing through um, border crossings. So that could really stop 
the spread of this terrible disease in its tracks if, if dogs are also there to detect it because they can detect malaria in the in socks of children that they were smelling in this laboratory in England. So it's just amazing what they can smell. And again, we just don't know what it is that they're smelling, but the, if it has a smell, the dogs can be trained on it. And uh, I, it, there's so much potential for future use. I think we're just at the tip of the iceberg right now. Oh, I think that's really clear reading your work. And I, it occurred to me also that maybe you can just calendar updating this book in five or seven years because it's moving so yeah, fast. That would be great. I would love to do that because I think there. I think we'll be seeing headlines that come from the research the dogs are doing for quite a while. There's even a, um, a I want to see is a physicist, I think, at MIT, who's in my book, and he envisions eventually smartphone technology, your smartphone being able to sniff you, kind of as a dog does. The smell will be, the sniffer thing will be on all the time if you want it to be, and it can tell you if you have a chemical change that relates to what the dogs have found. He's working with uh, cancer detection dogs uh, that are based in England, and it's incredible what the potential is for this. I don't know if I'd want my smartphone sniffing me all the time, but maybe just every so often a little check to see, okay, do you have any of these things uh, emanating? So I think things like that will make big news when when they happen, and I do think that they will happen thanks to the dogs. Let's talk about something basic like diabetes. Uh, most people know that there are diabetic sensing dogs or uh, dogs that could sense low blood sugar, impending low blood sugar. How does this work? Well, um, no one knows what they are smelling. What they're trained on is the scent of people in diabetic lows, for instance. And let's, say, let's just say diabetic lows because those are typically uh, extreme, well, both low and high are very dangerous, but low is, is um, what most dogs are trained on at first, at least. And so they will take, the, the researchers or the trainers will take samples of uh, saliva sometimes and sweat samples. So in fact, when I went to one of these places, uh, Dogs for Diabetics in Northern California, they asked me if they could swipe some gauze um, on my skin just to have a control because I don't have diabetes. So the dogs would be forced to you know say, no, that isn't and the other one is or whatever. So they take these samples from people when they're in a diabetic low, and then they train the dogs that you sniff on that, you alert to that smell, that's the smell you want, and you get a reward. And now you can imagine all the other smells that come from people because we're all so different, and this guy just had you know, a steak dinner, and this person just had onions. Who knows what the chemistry is, but there's some common scent that eventually the dogs go, aha, uh-huh. That's what they're asking me to smell, and that's when I get my treat or my favorite toy. And so no one knows what it is. They're trying to find the chemical the dogs are smelling, the compounds, the pattern of compounds. But what counts right now is the dogs can put this pattern together somehow with their amazing brains and their amazing noses and get their treat. And then they're happy, and the person they've smelled is happy, and uh, it's amazing. They can do this 10, 15 minutes before if someone has their um, the devices, their monitors, they can they can detect this before any of the scientific technology does. Yeah, that's really remarkable. Um, yeah. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about one dog you featured named Frida. Uh, this is a quite an amazing dog, and if I remember correctly, did she teach her successor Nina? Is that am I getting that right? Yes. So Go I ahead. Went to Croatia. Uh, I loved it. Um, it was they they have. They're really they're doing a lot of cutting edge training in in Zagreb, and one of one of the dogs I visited, her name is Nina, and she uh, I walked into her house 
to see the the man who she works with, um, who is uh, who has t- a terrible seizure condition. It's he's had it since he was a child, and he he has a hard time, you know, really speaking or or functioning that well. His parent he lives with his parents, um, and I walked into the house and. He had just had a seizure, and the dog Nina came over to me and greeted me. And I thought, oh my gosh, she's supposed to be she's supposed to be tending to him right now. But she was waiting until he came to a certain part of. She had already gone and and um, she already alerted him that he was going to have a seizure. So he was able to slide down and sit down with the help of his father. He had the seizure, and then she when I got there, she started licking him around the edges of his face. He has a little beard, um, little facial hair, and so and that was something she learned from the other dog, whose name was Frida, who is her predecessor. They were, Frida did the same thing. They trained her to alert to seizures by the scent of, of the young man when he was, um, I guess he was in his teens, and she kind of put it together herself. This, this scent happens, and then he goes down, and she started kind of getting worried and, and making, um, making it known that something was going to happen. They started being able to reward her for that alerting behavior. And somehow she was able to, it was more easy to train Nina because Frida helps with, with the training. She, she, she showed her what it was. She, uh, she, she would alert from the garden when they were outside. And so Nina would learn from this. I just love this story. She even learned how to chew a stick with her paws certain ways. I mean, it's amazing. If they can incorporate this learning from other dogs somehow into, into more training, around the world, I think that would be really worthwhile. And, and not just for medical or dogs, but other, other types of dogs, because they do, they do learn from each other. And it was, it was just very, very touching to see how devoted this dog, um, Nina, is to, to her, her man. And, and she just she lives for him. It's, it's very beautiful. The book is Dr. Dogs, How Our Best Friends Are Becoming Our Best Medicine by Maria Gudavich. Really enjoying it. Thank you so much. Thank you. More with animals today after this break. I wanted to tell you about a product we have been using and happily so because being a pet parent can get pretty messy. You want to protect your beloved furniture from spills, stains, fur, accidents, and other four-legged messes by using the quilted pet cover. That's the name of it. It comes from classic slip covers. This furniture protector, and we have one in use right now, provides designer style ultimate comfort and functionality shielding and protecting sofas, love seats, and chairs. They have two large pockets creating the perfect hiding spot for your remote phone or whatever you'd like to keep nearby. Just don't forget it. It's easy to put on and take off and it looks great in any home and it may help extend the life and look of your furniture. That's the quilted pet cover from Classic Slip Covers. At a recent marathon in Bangkok, Thailand, one of the marathon runners stopped at the seventh mile of a 26-mile run to pick up a lost puppy at the side of the road. The runner took the dog in her arms for the rest of the race up until the finish line. Wow. After the race, she went back to the place where she picked up the puppy just to look to see if there were any siblings or mother around, which was a smart thing to do. The puppy had a checkup with a veterinarian and is in her new forever loving home. With the marathoner. Yes. Oh, that's amazing. Isn't that sweet? 
yeah, just pick up an extra 10 pounds along the way. <laughs> oh, I'm still running. No problem. It's really amazing. I love that. Yeah, it's a good story. California's governor, Governor Gavin Newsom, love him or hate him, Peter, he's doing a pretty good job for the animals here in our state, wouldn't you say? Okay, yeah, I guess. He just recently signed multiple animal protection laws you should know about. The most, I think, monumental one of these is the outlaw of the production and sales of fur. In fact, this law makes California the first state in the country to end fur sales. There are cities that have fur bans like Los Angeles, San Francisco, and a few others, but this is the first statewide ban. And I'll tell you, this news comes just weeks after the governor signed a fur trapping ban into law. This release is from In Defense of Animals. We like them. So specifically, this law will make it illegal to manufacture, sell, offer for sale, display for sale, trade, give, donate, or otherwise distribute a new fur product in the state of California, and it goes into effect on January 1, 2023. I never understood why it takes so long from the moment something signed into yeah. law to go into effect. Well, you've got the furriers, the people in business. They need to figure they need out. Time. They need to be yeah. trained to be coders. Yeah. So we're talking shoes, clothing, handbags, anything that contains fur would all be banned from such sales. Most people know that the fur industry is barbaric. It's an industry that involves unregulated and horrific methods of killing animals, and involves many kinds of animals, including coyotes, chinchillas, mink, rabbits, foxes. And some people don't realize we're also talking about the fur from dogs and cats and other animals, which are often undisclosed or unintentionally mislabeled by the manufacturers, right? So there's a lot of mislabeling and deception going on. If you want to listen to the show of February 9th of this year, February 9th, 2019, where I offer tips on how to distinguish between real and fake fur, because as I said, very often garments are mislabeled. So Laura, you're saying that a garment can be labeled as imitation fur or synthetic, but actually contain hair or fur like from a dog that is actually cheaper to produce than the synthetic stuff. Is that right? You bet. And it's an intentional mislabeling. Wow. Anyway, In Defensive Animals created their list of the 10 best and worst celebrities when it comes to fur animals. Do you want to hear this list? I do. Another celebrity list? Sure, why not? <laughs> okay, so this is their top 10 best celebrities in terms of being anti-fur. Okay, I think I follow that. Actress, model, fashion designer, Mena Savari. I don't know who she is. Anyway, she recently led an anti-fur march in Beverly Hills as part of a fur-free Friday protest. Mena has tweeted, I love being able to feel good in what I'm wearing. I am proud to say I no longer wear nor promote this cruel practice. And I encourage you all to educate yourselves about all that's horrific taking place within the fashion industry in relation to the fur trade and industry to see that there are so many awesome and exceptional alternatives. That's an epic tweet. Yes. <laughs> Next best anti-fur person. Okay. RZA. RZA. Do you know RZA? Mm, He's no. a rapper. Yeah. Okay. Next, Angelica Houston. That's one I know. Tim Gunn. He's an American fashion consultant. And a lot of these folks publicly endorse the New York City proposed fur ban, by the way. Taraji P. Henson, Eva Mendez. Eva states, I recently got a dog and he's not only made me a happier girl, he's made me much more sympathetic to animal rights. I look at my beautiful dog and think, of course I'd never eat him or skin him for his fur. So why would I be okay with eating a cow or wearing a cheetah? It's just not right. It's a contradiction. Sounds good. Kim Kardashian. I hey, know I know who she is. Yeah. Told People Magazine that she had all of her favorite fur coats remade with faux fur. 
Alicia Silverstone, big animal activist. Olivia Munn. Olivia said in an interview, when you think about even that little tiny trim of fur on your gloves or on your collar, that it's still coming from an animal that had had to endure so much pain just for you. There's nothing good about pretending like you don't know. Mm. Ricky Gervais, you know who he is? He's an English comedian, funny guy. This was a great tweet from Gervais. It breaks my heart to know that millions of beautiful little creatures are caged for their short life, then electrocuted and skinned to make some idiot a fur coat or accessory. Shame on everyone involved. Ban fur. Okay, 10 worst celebrities in terms of fur wearing. Lady Gaga. Yeah. Barbie B. She's a rapper, actress, whatever. Justin Bieber. He's an annoying individual, isn't he? <laughs> you could see pictures of him in a bulky fur jacket. Oh, yeah. You know, he's one of these troubled, spoiled little pop stars. He had a pet monkey confiscated from him by German authorities in 2013. We reported on that. I think he illegally obtained that monkey and then abandoned it. Anyway, the monkey's now okay. I think he's living in a wildlife refuge in North Germany. Heidi Klum is next one on the worst celebrity fur list. Jennifer Lopez. Too bad she's so into showing off fur. Yeah. Rihanna. She's a singer. Chris Kendall and Kylie Jenner. Do you know who they are? Oh, those are the three uh, delightful sisters. Oh, is Chris the mom? Is Chris I'm, their mother? I really don't know. Okay. They have a new fashion line and some lipstick. And I was watching one of the YouTubes and one of the gals said, oh, this lipstick looks good enough to eat. And then I just quickly <laughs> turned it off because it was annoying. Lana Del Rey. She's a singer. Nicki Minaj, another singer. Of course, I had to look the majority of these people up. I have no idea who they are. <laughs> and finally, the last of the worst of the 10 celebrities, Conor McGregor. You must have heard of him, right, Peter? Yes, he is the MMA yes. animal. MMA guy. Yeah. Yeah, you see a picture of him with a huge... Huge, like, flying around Exactly. His neck. That's good, Lori. Okay, thank you very much. Well, thank you, Indefensive Animals, for providing that entertaining list. Lori, we're running short on time, but I wanted to mention a few of the other bills that Gavin Newsom signed into law in California. These are more pro-animal laws, really demonstrating that California is a way ahead of the pack of the states in our nation. For instance, Assembly Bill 128, it strengthened the anti-horse slaughter laws by making it harder for kill buyers to turn a profit. Another bill protects human and animal victims of domestic violence. Another one protects the environment by banning hotels from providing those miniature plastic bottles, like those shampoo bottles. I'll miss those little bottles. I will too. Another bill he signed bans trophy hunting of bobcats until 2025. Then they have to work things out after that. And another one uh, bans trade of skins from many threatened species, including sharks, hippos, caimans, and others. Of course, Senate Bill 313 bans the use of wild animals in circuses. And finally, Senate Bill 397 requires local transit operators to accept animal companions on public transit during emergency evacuations. Thank you, Senator Glazer. So there you go, California. Something's going right here. Okay, thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. The PetSafe Peek-A-Bird electronic cat toy allows your cat to go wild for fluttering feathers, giving them hours of enticing playtime. With two different modes, the Peek-A-Bird will engage your cat and keep him or her entertained throughout the day. In one-time play mode, the toy will play for 10 minutes and then turn off automatically to conserve battery life. In play all day mode, the toy will play for 10 minutes and then rest for two hours before it begins again. 
During the two-hour address period, if the motion sensor picks up movement from your cat, it will automatically begin to play again. Allow your cat to enjoy the thrill of the hunt with the PetSafe Peekabird cat toy.